Welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. My guest today is Amy Harder, National Energy and Climate Change Reporter at Axios, where her reporting includes exclusive scoops and analyses of national and global trends. Previously, Amy covered similar issues for The Wall Street Journal and The National Journal, and she was also the inaugural journalism fellow for the University of Chicago's Energy Policy Institute in 2018. Amy has been a longtime friend of RFF and has joined us as a moderator for several of our events. And we followed her work on shale gas development, carbon pricing, and so many of the other topics of interest in today's energy and climate policy conversations. So I'm very pleased to be here with Amy today to discuss how she thinks about environmental journalism and journalism in general in this day and age. Stay with us. Amy, thank you very much for joining us here on Resources Radio. Uh, Something that I actually forgot to mention to you as we were chatting just before getting on the recording is that my co-host, Daniel Ramey, says hi. So hello, Amy, from Daniel Ramey. As an illustration of how connected you are to the RFF family, uh, you have joined us several times for events, and we're just really pleased to have you here on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me on. Sure. Uh, So I know you spend most of your time actually asking the questions, and I hope that it's a nice change of pace to sort of be on the other side of the microphone. Um, But I wanted to start by asking a bit about your background. And uh, so can you tell our listeners just a little bit about your path to journalism and maybe to energy and climate journalism in particular? Yeah, definitely. Uh, So I would say my path to journalism was very much thought out and planned, and my path to energy and environmental Journalism in particular was a little bit of an, a happy accident. Okay. So I had always wanted to be a writer and a journalist. Uh, so that's what I got a degree in in college. It's just a bachelor's of arts in journalism. And I have no other formal education, but I like to think that journalism is itself an education. I just get paid for it, which is amazing. And so, yeah, I moved out here right after college. Uh, I'm re- originally from Washington State. And I had initial plans to be a legal journalist. So I would go to law school and then go back to writing. Of course, upon further reflection, that was a a really poor decision, considering law school is very expensive and journalism isn't exactly (laughs) known to bring in the bucks. So when I abandoned that plan, uh, my editor at the time where I was at, which is National Journal, it's a DC-based policy publication, he said that they needed help with their energy and environmental coverage. And really, the rest is history. I I just fell in love with the topic. Uh, I love how it can change so much uh, in a relatively short period of time, and also that it's so big. I mean, I can Mm -hmm. cover the energy mix of Australia or oil exports, you know, leaving the U.S. or climate change in Alaska. There's just so much going on that I never get bored, even though I've been on the same beat, more or less, for more than a decade now. Hmm. That's that's actually leads me to one of my first questions for you. Um, as a non someone who's not trained in journalism, but who also loves asking questions, I want to kind of selfishly ask this one, which is of all those possible topics and angles within this broad energy and environment and climate space. How do you go about choosing the areas of focus for your stories? Is it some combination of your own interest and then sort of coordination with your editors or what does that process actually look like? 
That's a constantly evolving uh, art as opposed to a science. I would say it depends largely on where I am and what publication I'm working for. So over my career, I've so far worked at National Journal, as I mentioned, and then the Wall Street Journal, uh, and then now at Axios. And my time at the Wall Street Journal, for example, was pretty much focused on whatever the breaking news of the day was. So I could have been standing in line and going into the Flint, Michigan water crisis hearing, or I could have been in the UN, the United Nations climate conference. Uh, and those are two things that I did while I was at the journal. Now, fast forward to my current gig, I have a lot of freedom to cover what I want to cover, which mm -hmm. is really a real luxury. I think a lot of journalists don't have that type of freedom, and so I'm very grateful to Axios for letting me for letting me do that. But of course, they give me this freedom because they know that I cover the, you know relevant things. And so what I've been focusing on since I've been at Axios, which was April 2017, there's been so much change in the energy and climate change space. And so I've been focusing pretty specifically on the levers of potential change when it mm. comes to big climate policy. Okay. Uh, for example, one transition we've seen a lot in the last couple of years is oil and natural gas companies feeling the pressure from investors and activists and politicians to be more uh, upfront about the impact their products have on climate change and also potentially evolving their business uh, strategies to exist and make profits in the next uh, coming century. So that's just one example of the types of thing I cover. Now, I think just as importantly, given I focus on all of these things, there's some that I won't be able to focus on. And sure. I would say one thing that I've covered less here at my job at Axios is, for example, the in incredible busy regulatory rollback of this administration. Uh, and now that's not because it's not an important story. It is a very important story. But I see other publications like The Washington Post and The New York Times and Bloomberg doing a really great job covering that story. So I like to provide readers with a value add. I want to write something that nobody else is writing about because otherwise, what am I doing? And so that's sort of the messy mix of how I decide what to cover. But, but I'll tell you, I mean, it changes every day and I'm constantly not second guessing myself, but constantly checking with myself to make mm -hmm. sure that my current plan is the right plan. And, and, and sometimes it changes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I suppose I never really thought about a journalist's obligation to sort of fit themselves in the journalistic ecosystem too, right? So it's not just about their individual preferences or even that of their own publication, but it really is, as you said, filling the gaps in knowledge across the range of organizations that are providing news and that number of organizations keeps getting bigger and bigger as well. So, um, so yeah, I can imagine that adds layers of complication to, to how you think about these issues. Exactly. And that's something that, frankly, I don't know if other journalists uh, think this as well, but just for me as, as a human, I, I, I don't like to be redundant in whatever I'm doing because if there's 10 journalists writing on, you know, Trump's rollback of, Obama's climate regulations, well, that's great. You can go read those 10 stories. I'm going to do something a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that's one of the, and I didn't do that at the journal because I, you know, I was working at the Wall Street Journal. It's a paper of record, as the saying goes in journalism, that if it happens, the journal needs to cover it. And that was great. And I loved it. And I got some great scoops while I was there. But I've, you know, I've, I'm evolving as a journalist. And 
I like to do these more sort of original reporting that I think benefits readers, hopefully, just as much as it benefits myself and Axios. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, something that occurred to me as I was thinking about questions to ask you is that it is a it's an interesting season in which to be a journalist in the U.S. I feel like the journalism profession is getting more attention than it has in previous years. Um, not always in, in positive ways either. And so you have this combination of sort of a, a visible profession and then a series of visible issues that can really inflame passions on, on all sides. So how do you see your role as a journalist in this pretty polarized information ecosystem that we're living in right now? Do you, you know, at RFF here, we think a lot about how we bring balance and rigor to these hot button issues and I imagine you kind of have to deal with some of those same those same positionings around balance and rigor can you say anything about that yeah this is something that I think about constantly and I I try not to shy away from it because I think it's critically important that even as climate change and especially as climate change becomes a more pressing concern and the impacts of it become more apparent and, and deadly uh, around the world that journalists all the more need to provide a sense of balance and impartiality to mm-hmm. to this debate. And I want to be clear here that that does not mean giving airtime to, you know, you know so-called experts who deny the basic uh, consensus that he, human activity is the primary cause of Earth's temperature rise over the last century. And, and we don't. I've done plenty of stories documenting who these people are, but I don't provide them an outlet to say false information about mm-hmm. climate change. But, so, but once we put that aside, there is an incredibly intense debate happening about how to go about addressing climate change and how aggressive the response should be. And sure. so I, I take it upon myself to both cover the the expected immense impacts of a warming world. At the same time, I also want to cover the sometimes negative impacts of actual climate policies, such as higher energy prices. And I think that's something that isn't getting as much coverage. And so that's why I hope throughout this year and coming years that I do more of that, because I think going back to what I said about that, there, you know, me wanting to provide, fill a void that might be in the journalism space, I think there's a void for really critical coverage of policies to address climate change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I want to dig just a little bit deeper into that coverage of climate change, because you have been writing about the topic for a number of years, and I imagine just as the policy dialogue and the political dialogue around climate change has evolved, that your coverage of it has evolved as well. And so how would you say that your your coverage of climate change has changed in the time that you've been writing about it? Are there parts of the discussion that you focus on more? Are there constituencies that have become an important part of the conversation in a way they weren't five years ago? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, it has changed significantly over certainly the last decade and even more starkly uh, since Trump went into the White House. Of course, Trump winning has had a big impact on that, Mm -hmm. Uh, but that's not the only driver. I, I think a president who rejects this mainstream scientific consensus really sort of, uh, you know, stirred up the dirt that had been settled for a while. Uh, And it was, and it continues to be uh, the, media's responsibility to highlight uh, when he's wrong and to highlight the people he's getting information from. 
um, but also highlight, you know, the potential, you know, lack of feasibility of, for example, the Green New Deal. So that's one way I would say in the last couple of years, climate change has just catapulted itself to not the top issue in America and around the world, but certainly something that, you know, it's become a common a comment to make on, for example, like the late night shows. When when I stay up late enough to, to see those shows, I see that climate change is just becoming something people talk about. And we didn't see that a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. When I was at National Journal, I did a series of reporting around the country about how the oil and natural gas boom was affecting uh, different states. And Daniel and I, you know, I, I interviewed him for his, his his new book on fracking. And, you know, when we had that conversation, I remember the, the times I spent in North Dakota and Colorado. And, and now, uh, you know, fast forward six, seven years, I'm wanting to do a similar trip, but focused on the climate policies of mm-hmm. states like New Mexico and uh, obviously California. And so it's been really, you know, fun as a reporter to be able to kind of move uh, in my coverage along with the issue as mm-hmm. it develops. Mm-hmm. And do you find that the sort of the pace of change in the conversation around climate change has made it hard to keep up as a journalist? Or is it is it in general, as you said, just kind of exciting, right, to sort of stay on top of things and really try to follow the conversation as it unfolds? I think it's exciting. Uh, I remember when I left the journal, I had a, a colleague there who told me that, you know, I should be focusing on energy, you know, don't focus on climate change so much. And that person recently said that I was right and, and he was wrong. <laughs> and so I would like to think that I've been ahead of the curve uh, mm-hmm. on, on this story. And I, I've also had a lot of, not recently, but a couple of years ago, I had people in the oil and gas industry saying, gosh, you're covering climate change so much. It seems a little odd. But now it's like everybody is talking about it, whether they want to or not. Now, I will say that the oil and gas industry is watching everything very closely. And it's a conversation that and a debate that's happening. So whether you want it to or not. And so that's why, you know, I'm excited about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is there is one interesting or sort of potentially worrisome trend that I want to make sure that I don't fall into, and, mm-hmm. and I don't think I am, although sometimes I get criticism for that. I think it's very important that no matter how much more I cover climate change, that people don't perceive me as an advocate mm-hmm. for anything mm-hmm. other than advocating for the facts of this consensus around climate change and human activity. For example, people don't expect crime reporters to be vigilantes for example. Mm -hmm. So just in the same way, people shouldn't expect me to be a climate advocate. I I did a a column recently with the headline, you know, climate change is getting too big and divisive to solve. And Hmm. it was a relatively downer column about the state of affairs and the potential for big change. And somebody on Twitter said, oh, climate reporter throws in the towel, to which Mm. I responded only in my head. Uh, it's not my job to throw the towel, let alone hold mm-hmm. it. It's my job to tell the world how I see things through an, a dispassionate perspective. And I think as people become more concerned, as companies and lawmakers face more pressure, that requires an even more dispassionate and even-handed journalist. And I know there's lots of people out there, including in journalism, that won't agree with that. But nonetheless, that's where I come down. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I I think that speaks to all of our desire to maintain some level of optimism on a subject that can seem as overwhelming and as intractable as climate change. I mean, it really has 
it grows more intractable by the moment in terms of sort of the the pace of change that we need to undertake. But I'm totally with you. I think we at RFF don't, we're in a similar boat of not wanting to, um, not wanting to sugarcoat things that can't be sugarcoated and, and wanting to, you know, sort of stick to the mission of um, just providing honest commentary on the, the challenges that face us, even though that's not as uplifting, it's an important part of the information that needs to be contributed towards solutions too, is an honest baseline of where we are and the challenges we're facing. So I, yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that. And I think that really resonates uh, with the research community as well. Yeah, that's great. And I think as, especially as Republicans kind of, as I said in another recent column, come back in from the cold, Mm -hmm. no pun intended, uh, they're they're beginning (laughs) to engage on this issue again after, you know, more than a decade of either ignoring it or dismissing it. Uh, I think as Republicans and conservative groups begin to suggest and devise policies and write research papers on the topic, I think it'll all have to be even more careful about how I analyze things and and make sure that a certain proposal isn't just another talking point. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and that's great. I, that's why I love what I do. It's, it's certainly never, ever, ever boring. <laughs> Well, that is fantastic. Um, Well, and I'm just thinking back to earlier when you were saying, too, that, you know, there were points where people were kind of asking you, why so much focus on climate? And you felt like you were, in the end, very much justified and sort of ahead of the curve. And I think we definitely consider journalists among the people who we look to for those sort of cutting edge, um, ahead of the curve ideas, because you're doing so much listening and so much information gathering. And, you know, we, we often involve journalists as moderators or even panelists for our events because you, again, you're sort of on that leading edge of ideas. And so I wanted to, I wanted to ask if you could share some of that wisdom that, that hopefully I can ask you to share. Um, so what do you think are the environmental stories to watch in 2020? Do you envision that there will be deeper dives on things that have been bubbling for a long time, like U.S. climate policy? Or are there maybe any quote unquote sleeper issues that you think can or should get more attention? Well, I would say the top issue that I think all of us are watching, whether we want to or not, is the election. Mm, Um, And we're we're already seeing climate change penetrate that debate in a way that we frankly have never seen before. So that's something that I'm keeping an eye on. It's again, it's not something that's my top tier focus at this point in time because so many other publications are doing a great job of that and I I will you know get to it when we when we get a little closer to November but politics is actually not my favorite topic uh, despite the fact that I've had my career in Washington DC for <laughs> the past 12 years uh, so that's obviously something I'm watching. The implications for this election, the implications for climate change of this election cannot be overstated. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, I would say that follows for every policy, right? I mean, Trump has upended everything that Obama did. So it follows that no matter what Democrat gets into the White House, if a Democrat wins, it'll be the same. The pendulum of Washington policy will swing back to the left, Mm -hmm. no matter who it is. So that's the main thing I'm watching. But some of the things that I have to say interest me more than that is something I mentioned earlier about uh, the states um, who are pursuing aggressive climate policies in the last few years. We've seen a big trend there. New York, California, Hawaii, New Mexico. Uh, so all of those states, and, and I'm sure I'm missing some, I think uh, I think it'll be interesting to see how they achieve what they achieve and, and what challenges that they'll, they'll face, because inevitably they will face challenges. And so I want to be able to document 
all sides of that. Another thing that I think is um, a potential sleeper issue is we hear a lot about the war with China, trade war with China, I should uh, clarify, not an actual war. <laughs> Fortunately, just a trade war for now, yep. <laughs> for now, yes, you just never know in this world. Uh, so that's obviously getting a, um, a lot of the, the oxygen in the room today. But one thing that I'm watching is a potential climate change-fueled trade war with Europe in particular. So Europe, the, the European Union has proposed what amounts to a carbon tariff for goods coming in from other countries that don't have similar climate uh, change policies. Now, this isn't likely to go into place for a, another year or two. But nonetheless, some analysts that I've talked to have said that this could be the way Congress feels pressured to do something big on climate change. Uh, if if Europe hits back with some sort of tariff there. I think in the current political environment, and if Trump wins again, I think it's more likely that the Trump administration will respond with unrelated tariffs, for example, on wine, which he is already doing. He may just do more of that. I don't anticipate the Trump administration to respond with, oh, Europe, you want us to do climate policy. Okay, here you go. <laughs> right, right. It'll, it'll it doesn't be, seem like a particularly a lever that would particularly move the current administration very much, but... Right. Yeah, can, it, yeah. mm -hmm. it would be a messier and less um, even type of trade war. So that's something that I think is really interesting. Uh, and, you know, our conversation so far has focused, rightly and understandably so, a lot on climate change. Uh, and it's obviously humongous and inevitable crossover with energy. I think some of the more straight just energy things I'm looking at. One is, of course, what happens to oil and natural gas prices, uh, which, of course, has a huge impact on climate change. But they remain very, very low. And I think that's making it hard for a lot of oil and gas companies to, to be profitable. And so I think some people are saying that's just due to the low prices. Others are saying, well, it's because they, you know, investors are seeing the end of the line for these companies, even if it's not for a century. This is the beginning of the end. Uh, that's what some people say. And I'm, I'm no uh, you know, analyst on these areas, but that's one area that I'm looking to see if these companies rebound and if prices go back up in a reliable mm -hmm. manner. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Well, I would welcome <laughs> ongoing conversation with you, too, about the issues that you're, you're sort of looking at. I think the states as a learning laboratory um, you know, I think we've had a little bit of that experience watching Canada go through this combination of sort of trying to backstop at the federal level, but then also having provinces implement their own climate policies. And so, yeah, I do think it'll be really interesting to see uh, to the extent that that's playing out in the U.S., what do we learn from those initial experiences where things have actually passed, at least at least goals have actually been set, as opposed to a place like Washington State where, you know, the we've learned a lot of lessons about how to not pass a carbon tax. But, um, but this will be interesting to see, well, what happens when you actually set a goal and then let that play out in the legislative process? So I'm with you on that one. I think it's going to be yes, really interesting. Definitely. And I hope to make it up to Canada for a reporting trip sometime this year. Excellent. So I, I want to change topics just a second um, and ask you about your fellowship at the University of Chicago. Um, so just for our listeners, you were the inaugural journalism fellow at the Energy Policy Institute of Chicago. And I, I have a sneaking suspicion it was 
pretty fun. And uh, so I wondered if you could just say a little bit more about what your responsibilities were there and maybe ask, I imagine that in your interactions with students, they were sort of looking for nuggets of wisdom that you might impart. And I'm wondering if you would be willing to share one of those nuggets of wisdom with our listeners as well. Yeah, definitely. So it was an incredible opportunity uh, to be uh, there, to be a fellow there and their inaugural fellow in journalism uh, even more. And so one thing that I really appreciated was getting outside the beltway and talking to people who aren't just living and breathing on Twitter all day, because that's what we do inside D.C. and we as in journalists. And so I think it's just really important that people see the bigger picture. Um, so not only was I getting out and talking to real people, as, as we call them, but also talking to people who are so incredibly smart in their profession. Of course, Michael Greenstone, uh, executive director of the of the group of the of Epic, as we call it, he did uh, economic policy for Obama in his White House, and and so it was really great. And and so I helped um, moderate and put together events uh, and participated in, in those. And then also had some sit downs with students to hear, you know, why they're pursuing a certain area of either journalism or energy. One thing that I really love that I've sort of accidentally fallen into over the last decade is that I, I'm being asked to speak both on journalism and on energy. And so it was really great to talk with students who, are, who both want to be journalists, but, but maybe also or just somebody in the energy space. And so the one thing that I, I really tried to emphasize to students or to really anybody who will listen to me <laughs> is um, this idea of humility. I think people, especially in D.C., but pretty much anybody who thinks they're smart, and most of us think we're all smart, is to really be humble in what you know and how you interact with other people. So for me as a journalist, I really try to bite my tongue or really and really listen to people, even if I think I don't agree with them. Uh, and I think that's really important as a student and just as a human. Um, because we're in such a polarizing world now that we all just go into our corners and we don't talk to people who disagree with us. And I think if we were more humble and we just appreciated that people can have different views, uh, then we, we, we start a conversation and a learning process from a, a stronger place. And I know humility, people don't often interpret that as strength, but I actually think it requires a lot of strength to be humble. Uh, and so that's something that I emphasized to these students. Um, I also spoke to my mom's church group uh, in Spokane, Washington, and I said the same thing. Um, so that's something that I try to do, and I hope others do it as well. Well, that, yeah, that's fantastic advice, I think, and it definitely speaks to um, maybe your inclination towards journalism, to actually ask as many questions as you're giving answers. So I think that's very telling about you as a journalist and then also just great advice for all of us as human beings. So, well, Amy, I think we're coming pretty close to our time here. So I think I might close with our regular feature, our top of the stack feature. I was thinking about this last night and trying to imagine the height of the stack that must be on your desk as someone whose job it is to comb through information consolidate that and then send it back out. So I, I personally am imagining that the top of your stack is quite far off the floor, but if you can find it, what would you recommend to our listeners? What good content is at the top of your stack? Maybe it's a book, an article, another podcast. What are you consuming these days? Yeah, it is a really difficult task to decide what to focus on uh, and what to, to immediately delete. Uh, one of my 
mantras for my life, but also in particular my job, is a quote by Warren Buffett, uh, which goes, the difference between successful people and very successful people is that very successful people say no to almost everything. Hmm. Which is just to say, I cannot read everything and I cannot stay on top of everything. So I choose the relatively small slice of the world that I focus on. Um, so that being said, um, I think I'll start with a RFF uh, item that I was really impressed with. You guys did the, it was a data-driven uh, tool where it compares different forecasts of energy and and emissions and all that from various entities around the world. And I found that, and I still find that incredibly helpful because it's so hard to, to have to pick through, you know, go to one email and one website and just to have them all in, in one place is incredibly useful. That is great um, to know. It might not be like my, it's not my bedside reading material, but <laughs> <laughs> it's nonetheless incredibly useful uh, and important um, f- for reporters. Uh, and then one former colleague of mine, uh, I'll give a shout out, Russell Gold at the Wall Street Journal. He um, has been there for many years. He's one of their, their best energy reporters. He's new to the climate beat and recently uh, announced this on Twitter. So I'm definitely not scooping him. Um, <laughs> and so I, I've always respected him and he does really great work in this area and across the energy spectrum. So I would I would recommend folks follow his coverage. And then lastly, just one article that I came across recently, uh, again, data-driven, which I think is really important for an intangible story like climate change. Um, A recent article in the ABC, the Australian Broadcast um, Network, so an article in Australia was showing the, the grave impacts that that country is likely to face and is already, of course, with the bushfires. Um, facing because of climate change. And it showed through just uh, really simple charts how much how much harder and greater and more difficult it'll get as inaction continues and then how much less bad it will be if action is taken. Mm-hmm. And you can put in the year that you were born and compare yourself to, say, what a six-year-old would be today. Anyways, I thought it was a great example uh, of journalism and helping to make a, a difficult issue that can seem far away and intangible, mm-hmm. more relatable. And so those are those are three examples of things that I found really helpful lately. Well, that's fantastic. And thank you for including an RFF uh, piece on your list. I think that was our global energy outlook. So and and actually another shout out to Daniel Ramey, who was one of the contributors to that that tool. So it's good to know that um, that the work that goes into data visualization and things like that really does sort of pay off in terms of making the content that much more accessible and um, and useful for people out there. So, Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, well, Amy, this has been great. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Resources Radio. Um, and I'm sure we will be in touch with you many times over the next years. But again, thanks for joining us, and it's a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thank you so much. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Thanks for tuning in. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants 
they do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.